1: Some historical catastrophes can level the playing field, bringing down the mighty and creating opportunities from nothing. Epidemics tend to do the opposite, and COVID-19 is no exception. Poverty, pollution, pre-existing conditions and patchy social safety nets all make the disease more lethal to the least well-off. The economic fallout is widening racial and gender inequalities, and it's hitting black America hardest of all. But the pandemic has also supercharged charitable giving in America. And following mass demonstrations against racism and police violence, businesses pledged more than $450 million to social justice groups. The question is just how far does an outpouring of generosity like this go towards fixing the root of any of these problems? You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking Can philanthropy help save the American dream? My guest is Darren Walker, president of the Ford Foundation. Born into poverty in rural Texas, Mr. Walker now leads one of the wealthiest charitable foundations anywhere in the world with an endowment of over $13 billion. He co-founded the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance and is a director of PepsiCo and Ralph Lauren, also serving on the boards of the National Gallery of Art and Carnegie Hall. Recently, he's been a recipient of Harvard's highest honour in African-American studies too. Darren Walker, welcome to The Economist Asks.
0: Thank you for the invitation. Happy to be with you.
1: You have written that you've lived on both sides of American inequality. Tell us a, a bit about that journey between the two extremes that you describe
0: there. Well, I was born in a charity hospital in a small town in Louisiana, and my mother and my sister were a family unit. My mother was a single mother. She moved us to Texas in the early 1960s and I was lucky enough to be enrolled in the first Head Start class in 1965 as part of President Johnson's anti-poverty program. And my journey was made possible by a country that I felt was cheering me on and that manifest in programs like Head Start in good public schools, in very low cost, affordable higher education at the University of Texas in Austin, and a journey that was also made possible by private philanthropy because I had scholarships. And so I was able to leave law school and come to New York unencumbered by debt. And my journey was really made possible because during my youth, I experienced a generosity and I also experienced a commitment to investing in human capital with potential. Today, I worry that young boys and girls like me, black, brown, poor, in urban and rural America, do not feel that their country is cheering them on. In fact, they often feel that The barriers to advancing in American society today are so great that it's almost impossible to dream.
1: It's interesting that you throw the word dream out there. Do you still believe in the American dream? Because in some ways, you almost seem to embody it.
0: I believe very much in the American dream, and I'm committed to doing everything I can to keep it alive. But there are many forces at play that make it difficult for the American dream to seem possible for many Americans.
1: Let's dive into that because one of the things I wanted to throw to you was this idea of this journey of social mobility, which you experienced and would like to support for others. And yet we know that the life chances that a child will earn more than their parents have dropped from over 90% for those born in 1940 to 50%, so pretty much a coin toss for those born in the 1980s. So the dream would appear to be on the back foot.
0: The dream is absolutely on the back foot. And that is because the systems and structures in American society that propel us forward onto that mobility escalator have become too difficult to achieve. It's too hard to get on that mobility escalator today. And that is because barriers, education, health, housing, these are all indicators of whether or not a person's life chances are positive or negative. Where you live, the zip code you are born in is the most significant indicator of your life chances.
1: And there are many reasons for that, and you can argue about what the right mix is. The Ford Foundation's mission is a commitment to challenging inequality around the world. How much do you believe that that is endemic in what some people would call turbo capitalism or hyper capitalism or neoliberalism or whatever you want to call it? It's usually a slightly rude description of the market economy. So how much do you believe that that's something that can be challenged as opposed to just alleviated by more giving or more philanthropy, the sort of thing you do in your day job?
0: Well, let's be clear. Philanthropy cannot solve the root causes of the inequality we see in America, which, if we're to be honest, are rooted in our history of white supremacy, of racism, of classism. These are the reasons why most of the people in this country who are poor are black and brown. Uh, Most of the people who are dying today of covid are black and brown Uh, there is no surprise to those of us who have studied the racial history of america uh, that we see the great economic and health and other determinants uh, of success the disparities in our society and so philanthropy cannot solve that and without addressing these root causes inequality will not be sufficiently tackled
1: Right. But at the same time, you believe in philanthropy, you sit there, you have a huge philanthropic organisation. So tell me what it can do and what it can't
0: do. Well, let's be clear about that. Andrew Carnegie in 1889 wrote a great book, The Gospel of Wealth. And in it, he did not challenge inequality. He said the work of people like himself and Rockefeller was to give away money and ameliorate through generosity and charity, the poverty they saw. Martin Luther King in 1968 said something different about philanthropy. He said, philanthropy is commendable, but it should not allow the philanthropist to overlook the economic injustice which makes philanthropy necessary. And in that regard, what he was saying is the systems that actually produce so much inequality and so much wealth— have to be interrogated if we're to really address inequality and injustice in society, especially economic injustice. And that's where we are today in America. I think people marching in the streets are marching about racial injustice. They're marching about policing, but they're also marching about the economic injustice that we see in American society.
1: We've been talking about this idea of social justice philanthropy for a long time now and bringing those aims more closely together. It's having a bit of a moment, we could say. What would you like to see companies do that's different from what was happening before? I would say for 20 years at The Economist, we've been writing about philanthropy. Tell me what's different now.
0: I think what's different now is wealthy people, corporations are recognising their complicity in a system that is unjust. And I don't believe that a wealthy person, a CEO, an investor gets up in the morning, looks in the mirror and says, I want to go out and create more inequality in America today. But they do that every day through the policies, structures, systems that are advanced and that are often supported by lobbyists and uh, policies that wealthy people, corporations, and investors pay for. Today, what is different is philanthropy is challenging those systems that produce inequality, which is interesting in and of itself that we who are the products of inequality are questioning whether the kinds of inequality we have are actually good for our society. So I think the role of social justice philanthropy is to get at the root causes. I find often philanthropy and philanthropists are interested in ameliorating the conditions. Social justice philanthropy is interested in understanding the question, why is there poverty?
1: So when we look at the mood that we're now in and the corporate mood, and we've also had other guests on the show talking about that, Melody Hobson, Valerie Jarrett, recently in the chair you're sitting in metaphorically. And one of the things that came out there was that this was a moment of a kind of eruption. And in some ways that also goes for corporate generosity. Is it generosity or is it more about
0: guilt? I think it's both. It is certainly guilt. We're seeing the guilt grants. We are seeing the virtue signaling, the statements about Black Lives Matter, and we stand with the African-American community. Those platitudes are lovely, but it is important that they be followed up with concrete, deliverable objectives. And that's where I think the rub is. I believe it is not the role of corporations to solve society's challenges, but corporations should not be contributing to the challenges. I've talked to over 20 CEOs since the murder of George Floyd, and they are all concerned deeply about this, in part because they are hearing from their African-American employees in ways they never have before.
1: I think it's a bit of a tricky line that you're walking there because are you asking someone to give something up? There's a sort of left-wing tax argument on this that says everything else is just BS, to put it impolitely. People should just pay more tax as they get to be wealthy. That doesn't appear to me to be entirely where you're coming from. So what is it that you want people of privilege to give up that isn't solving the problem so directly as alleviating it.
0: Well, I do think that we have to have a tax system that is more progressive and uh, does not penalize poor Americans, so that's important. But it's the larger cultural ways in which privilege is afforded advantages in our society. So you look at something like college admissions, the fact that we have a legacy program in the United States, a system whereby the children of wealthy and privileged alumni are given a leg up in the admissions process. And that benefits them at the expense of working class, uh, middle class Americans who don't have those networks. That's one example of many that needs to come to an end if we are to be able to restart that mobility escalator.
1: Well, lots of companies and institutions are looking to clean house in different ways. But if you're looking now to companies thinking, I need to change my board, board composition is always the canary in the coal mine, isn't it? It's the thing that you can change fastest. And I think you were already on the board of PepsiCo and you've been named to the boards of Square and to Ralph Lauren. Does that do anything other than make the company look as if it's responding quickly?
0: Let me just say that there is no more important indicator of a company's commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion than the composition of its board. And what I have found is that most boards are comfortable with a kind of token representation. If you look at the boards where there are African-Americans, there's usually one of us. And I think that is being challenged in very profound ways. And when that happens, because that is the center of power in that company. And so we're kidding ourselves if we are distracted by programs that are about recruiting more and having better programs uh, for employees so they can get together and and talk about the company. That is important, but that's uh, woefully inadequate for dealing with The core issue, the lack of commitment at the board level and the C-suite to change. So what I'm suggesting is that we go from tokenism to transformation.
1: Some people that we've spoken to on this show, and I'm thinking here of Ursula Burns, former CEO of Xerox, she said she was very happy to have diverse board representation, but she was more focused, I thought, on the pipeline, the, the shop floor, if you like, and that kind of progression. And she made the point that boards could be not exactly a distraction, but you could have a good representative looking board before you could sort out making sure what happens week by week, month by month, year by year in your company is actually progressing.
0: I disagree with that because we have seen significant recruitment programs. And what you find when you survey mid to senior level African-American executives is that they hit a wall, that there is a ceiling. And if at the board level questions are being asked and accountability is being put in place I can assure you it will be addressed. So I do not agree that having conversations or prioritizing diversifying the board is a distraction. I believe it is the most important thing that needs to happen because when that happens, the CEO is held accountable as part of their compensation, as part of their annual goal, to ensure that there is advancement of African-Americans in the company. Without that, it will not happen.
1: Let's reflect for a moment on the broader cultural context of a lot of what's going on. If we take the last few weeks, and particularly the argument about monuments and statues, among your many public roles, you've co-chaired a New York commission on city art, dealing with monuments and, and statues. And that brings you to a pretty contested space in the argument about statues and monuments being located where they should be relocated to, the context, or whether they should just go all together. How important have you thought that to be, particularly as it would relate to confederacy statues in the US?
0: Well, I wrote maybe five years ago an essay about the confederacy and confederate statues and monuments and markers, in which I said that the leaders of the confederacy sought the overthrow of the United States government and sought to dismantle the United States of America. And therefore, in my mind, they are not heroes and are not worthy of markers and memorials. And so I've been very clear about that point. And I believe that we now are seeing an accelerating consensus in America that these markers must go. I believe that they serve no purpose They were erected in defiance of integration and the positive social progress we were seeing in the American South. And they have no purpose other than to stand as symbols of racism and retrograde thought about race in America.
1: Do you have any statues that cause you pause for thought? Because it would be very easy if life were always clear-cut. But when I say statues, I always mean monuments and plaques, and perhaps where it's harder to make a decision about them.
0: Well, I think the challenge of our founding fathers is such a confounding one, because these men, Jefferson, Madison, Washington, were geniuses. They wrote words that were noble and valiant, but they also were hypocrites and deeply flawed. And it is a challenge to hold both of those narratives. But I do believe that we have to be able to hold both of those narratives, that they made it possible and that while they established a nation that was flawed from its founding, they established mechanisms to fix those flaws. And that is the work of this country. That is the American experiment.
1: So Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, they stay as far as you're concerned.
0: I believe they are worthy of recognition. I believe they are very flawed and very challenging figures.
1: Let's turn to the Business Roundtable, a statement that it made that caused the feathers to fly a bit around Wall Street and beyond in business and enterprise circles, because it suggested the focus should move away from the interest of shareholders and towards, and I quote, the benefit of all stakeholders, customers, employees, suppliers communities, and last but not least, shareholders. And the problem with that statement, it seemed to me, was it's either a recipe for such a radical upset in capitalism that I don't know where that would be coming from within the mainstream of thinking about it, or it would mean that businesses should just be doing good generally and serving lots of people well. And that would be a perfectly reasonable thing to ask, but that's what a lot of them think they're doing.
0: Well, first, I think we have to acknowledge that that has not been the view of most companies. The Milton Friedman ideology that the role of the firm is to maximize returns for shareholders and only shareholders has done tremendous damage to this nation and to trust in business. And so I believe that when the BRT took the bold step of rejecting, putting a nail in the coffin of the Friedman ideology, it was welcomed. And now the question is, show us concretely what a new stakeholder paradigm, recognizing, as you say, that there are several stakeholders in a firm.
1: But how would that work in practice? I remember that the Council of Institutional Investors had a forceful response at the time and it went like this, responsibility to everyone means responsibility to no one. Inevitably, there is going to be a hierarchy between these groups of stakeholders.
0: I'll give you one example. Why don't we have more profit sharing plans for frontline workers in companies? My grandfather, who had a third grade education, was a porter in Texas in an oil company, but he got stock in the company, even at his low wage, that allowed him to live a life with dignity after he retired. We don't have those anymore. In fact, a few years ago, the chairman of Delta, after a great year, laid out a plan to share some of the profits, and through the issuance of stock for employees, he was roundly criticized by the analysts who follow the airline industry on Wall Street because they said those dollars do not belong to the employees, they belong to the shareholders. I believe we've got to change that. The fact that you wouldn't give stock to your employees because you're afraid that your analysts are going to deem you for doing right is the difference between a Friedman ideology and the new BRT programme.
1: I was thinking of the American CEO class, the kind of people I would bump into at Davos when that was still a thing you could easily go and do up in a ski resort. And I wondered how many of those people who sign up to that kind of commitment are really serious about making it, or whether it just gets hived off to something like corporate social responsibility and people like you take it on yourselves to be more active. Do you think you're actually prevailing?
0: It's too soon to say, but I do believe that the fact that we are talking about this, the fact that in boardrooms and nominating and governance committee discussions where I have been, I am seeing a material change in the tone and the willingness to engage. That does not mean concrete action in the near term, but these companies, these cultures, systems, structures don't change overnight. But you can start to see that there are winds of change in the air and uh, I am hopeful, I am encouraged.
1: There's a good innovative idea coming out of the Ford Foundation and that's the decision to issue its own social bonds to finance borrowing. It's about a billion dollars, it's quite a big play. What do you want to do with it? And why have you gone for this new approach? Because of all the financing vehicles, of which you have a few up your sleeve by now, I thought you might have some worries about servicing the debt, but also the impact on other grant-giving budgets and the fact that the maturity length is very, very long for these things. You might not even be uh, in the job yourself at that point. It's 30 to 50-year horizon. How do you consider those downside risks?
0: Well, the social bond idea emerged because we were hearing from so many nonprofits reeling from the fallout from COVID, canceled fundraisers, museums and performing arts organizations with dark theaters, donors and corporate sponsors pulling back. And we, realized that we had to help and do more than we normally do. Unfortunately, our investments started to go down and our investment advisor said, now is not the time to reduce your liquidity and take money out of the endowment. Fortunately, the Federal Reserve, as you know, issued a new policy, and that policy basically made money pretty cheap in the US. And so we were able to devise a bond offering, the first of its kind, by a foundation for 50 years and a 30-year tranche, a smaller 30-year tranche. And the purpose of it is to use the proceeds to finance more nonprofit organizations during this very challenging time so that they are resilient and durable. We were able to have a remarkable take up in the market. We had over $5 billion of orders for $1 billion of bond, and therefore we got a great price. I think we are comfortable that over time we can do better than 2.8 percent. Our investment office has historically done much better than that. We are confident that the debt service uh, will not have an impact on our cash flow and the grant making that we're able to do. Um, And we believe, obviously, that a billion dollars today in present value, 50 years from now, we believe we will be able to retire comfortably and continue our work.
1: Final thought, Darren Walker, the number of empty plinths for those replaced statues and monuments is going to be multiplying in America and beyond. I think there's a lot of consideration being given to the new memorialization. So which neglected figure or figures would you like to see on a plinth?
0: I would like to see memorialised a woman from Mississippi, a farm worker. Her name was Fannie Lou Hamer. And Mrs. Hamer was one of the most extraordinary women of the 20th century. She rose from abject poverty, was confronted with racism, sexism, classism. She was beaten, pilloried by the white community in Mississippi because she sought to vote. And she led a mobilization to ensure that Black people in Mississippi could vote. She was one of the unsung heroes of the civil rights movement. And she is an American treasure and deserves to be memorialized.
1: Funny Lou Heyman is on your plinth. Darren Walker, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And we'd love to know what you think. Which neglected historical figures deserve to be immortalised? How much real good does philanthropy do? And if you could philanthropise from your many billions or millions to a cause, well, what would it be? Write to us at radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for more of our journalism, please do subscribe to us, economist.com slash podcast offer for your best introductory offer wherever you are. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right.